This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. We are so honored this morning um, to not just have church and be able to fellowship together, but to be having a very special guest. Um, Ivor Jerry Moore is with us. And the reason that we have him this morning is because we have a friend, Mr. Dave Perkins. We met him, I met him a couple years ago over at Ian Crone's house. He was sharing his story and a little bit of his music that night. And I was so moved that the next year when we were going into a service with another gentleman um, from Vanderbilt, I called Mr. Dave and said, could you please come over and sing for us a specific song that he wrote and sing called You Are Redeemed. And he came and sang it and we just loved it. And so Dave has remained friends with Grace Point and with us and specifically with Stan as Stan is over at Vanderbilt uh, Divinity with Dave where he's a professor. So Dave called us and said, I'm having in um, Ivor Jerry Moore to a, a specific event over at Vanderbilt, and I would love it if he could come in and share at your church, and we were happy to oblige with that. I know many of you have watched the documentary. I watched it in its entirety last night, and it was so moving, and so we're very honored to have him with us this morning. But first, can you help me welcome Mr. Dave Perkins? <laughs> Morning. There we are. <laughs> Testing. Um, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you all for coming out and braving the, uh, the ice and snow. This is my friend Jerry Moore, who has come in from Los Angeles. And uh, would you make him welcome, please? Just, thank you. I, I, uh, I love this man and have for um, many years, although we were separated uh, by many years of, of time. In 1974, I was a, a, a young, wet-behind-the-ears uh, guitar player uh, living up in Woodstock, New York. And Jerry had uh, what was arguably uh, the best, the most soulful rock band in, in Woodstock. And uh, I had the privilege of finally getting a slot in Jerry's band, which is when I um, actually developed a deep, uh, love and respect for Jerry. Now, the, the interesting thing was that we spent a lot of days in the Catskill Mountains, which is where Woodstock is, waiting for it to quit snowing, something we can all relate to this week, uh, so that we could uh, go, to the, uh, go to the gig, go to our show. So lots of time just sort of sitting around with each other and waiting. And um, I thought I knew you pretty well, Jerry, at, at, at that time, you know, and you were uh, plenty, plenty deep, and there was a lot, a lot to know. Uh, in 2009, I heard from Jerry asking, Dave, would you come up to Woodstock? They're, they're doing um, a series of, of concerts uh, to commemorate the uh, Woodstock Music Festival. And Jerry's, uh, Jerry was uh, instrumental in a series of concerts over the... Uh, two summers previous to the Woodstock Festival that uh, sort of consummated uh, in, into the Woodstock Festival. And so his band, Children of God, were playing at the Bearsville Theater uh, with several other artists. And so I went up and played and we reconnected and uh, sort of thought that was the end of it. But um, two years later, uh, my wife Sue and I were watching uh, PBS and they were um, debuting this uh, video, Freedom Riders. So we're watching, of course, with intense interest, and all of a sudden, there's my friend Jerry Moore. And uh, 
I was blown away. I thought, I, I really thought I knew this guy. How could I spend this much time with him? And he, he never brought it up that he was present at this very important uh, historical moment. So I, caught, I called Jerry and <laughs> said, Jerry, how come you never mentioned it? Because it was a big thing. It was a huge thing. And um, when I asked the question, the line got very quiet, and I could tell that Jerry was um, having an emotional response to my question, and that he's was the... He's about to do the same thing to me now. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's about to do the same thing to you. Um, but at, at any rate, that was the beginning of my sense that Jerry's story, the personal story, um, which I, as we sat around talking last night around the dinner table, Jerry and my wife Sue and I, I realized that Jerry's story is the inside story of the biggest story of the period when I was alive and on this planet. And that is the quest for freedom for all. And he was on the front lines. And so that's why uh, Jerry has come to Nashville to speak at Grace Point today and at Vanderbilt University um, tomorrow. So we're going to, uh, we're going to do things in, in uh, a little bit of an uh, interview uh, format today. But uh, I'm going to kick it over to Jerry, and um, he can tell you about the song that we're going to start with. Okay. And I'm sure I can get everybody to sing along with us. This is a very recognizable song. And actually, I was surprised uh, to find out that originally it was a, a labor union song, right? And uh, I'm going to speak in as many ways. We shall overcome. We shall
got to spend some time working in street ministry in South Central. And uh, we used to use these songs, these same freedom songs. Uh, they're about addiction, about drugs, overcoming drugs, and the different problems that people had. But we would praise the Lord to the Lord. Salvation is mine. Salvation is mine. Salvation is mine today. Oh, here in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. If we stay in the fight, we'll overcome. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. Okay. Oh, baby. You're going to have to swing your mic over there. This mic? Oh, I have a... Oh, oh, he gave me one right. of these fancy things they use nowadays. Okay. Uh, I want to do a little disclaimer before we start. David mentioned the whole emotional thing. And I saw uh, my father after a period of time, after he'd had a few strokes and because of material sclerosis and stuff, that he would get very emotional. Well, when I was younger, I used to say, Lord, how come I can't cry? Now I'm talking to God. I said, okay, God, it's enough. You can turn off the tears. <laughs> So, and I know a lot of times people say, oh, it's great to see that a, a guy can get emotional, but I think this is a little more than that. So, so I brought paper towels, and you guys have to bear with me, okay? <laughs> it's okay. You got me covered, right? You turn just it down. Don't, just don't get me crying. <laughs> well, um, I think the most the most powerful um, use of our time today is, is to um, ask Jerry to uh, sort of peel back the, peel back the layers and uh, knock away the years. And I want to I start by um, uh, taking him back to um, uh, being a, a football playing doo-wop singing, <laughs> son of a Baptist preacher in the Bronx. <laughs> okay. And um, I think your, your, your story in, in activism and civil rights uh, probably has its most physical beginning in your uh, decision to go to college in, in the South. And um, mm -hmm. yeah. so I wanted you to just uh, talk about that and um, was it, was it Morris, Morris College? Morris, yeah. Morris, Morris College, College in Sumter, yeah. Sumter, South Sumter, Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah, a lot of people confuse uh, the two. They think of Fort Sumter, but uh, it wasn't that Sumter. That's S-U-M-P-T-E-R. Sumter, South Carolina is S-U-M-T-E-R. And uh, I think during the 60s when I was there, the, we were told or we thought that it had been the birthplace of the White Citizens Council. So, Core and some of the groups were very active about, they had to be breakthroughs in Sumter. But a few years ago I went and I said, well, let me look that up. And uh, it wasn't the actual birthplace. But, it was but, but at the time, you, you all were conscious of Sumter being a, 
Oh yeah. A center of, of uh, white supremacy and, yeah. and, and very intense uh, uh, yes. organized action against against civil rights to keep Jim Crow sort of in in, in, right. in place. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Uh, yeah, it, that's a fact. I uh, and when I went there at first, uh, I know you mentioned uh, growing up. I think a part of Growing up in the church with my father, the church was the model of the church was be friendly and love everybody. And uh, I had, uh, I guess, a big cross section of friends, like you mentioned, singing, the streets doo wop singing. And uh, my brother said at one point that he thought I should uh, write about the whole experience uh, from a viewpoint of. How do, you, how do you get from uh, being the president of a division of a citywide gang? To uh, nonviolent action in South, you know, civil rights action, nonviolence. Uh, and he thought that was interesting, but we, uh, we had a pretty mixed group uh, it was Elder Avenue, uh, and uh, I, I think this is interesting. I wanted, actually, I have a little agenda here I wanted to get in the train and sleep in. Uh, back then with, with the gangs and stuff, uh, when I was looking back at that, there were actually were guns in, but uh, like for instance, where I lived in the Bronx, those guys were mostly uh, older guys, they all could drive, and. Uh, you know, back then it was the James Dean thing with the slick back hair and the cars. And, uh, but the gangs basically in Harlem, different places, that's uh, a lot of the shootings there where people were getting killed. And so kind of like the black on black thing that exists today. Uh, there were, God was always involved in my life because I remember times when I'd be going up to, it was Elder Avenue to sing with the guys. Uh, one night in particular, mom, I had to do the dishes before I left. But I think I didn't do the pans, right? So she called me back to do them. And of course, I got uptight, I had the wrong attitude, so I was stuck in the house for a longer period of time. But that night, the guys uh, from Classen Point, which was basically Irish, drove through and shot up their block. But I don't think in those days, people were shooting so much. They would shoot in the air more in the drive through and or killing. And the gang there was called the Black Rebels. And uh, there was nobody black in the gang. And so I was with the younger guys on the block who used to sing, so they tried to draft me, but I didn't go for it. But the guys in the project had a gang called the Dutchmen, and uh, there was nobody white in that gang. But, <laughs> so, and, uh, but the thing, the point was, uh, in all the neighborhoods, uh, there was like a mix, you know. But the whole thing of uh, gangs and the guns and the thing nowadays is, is a lot, seems a lot different. In movies, I know there were periods of time, the times when people have talked about movies. I was influenced by movies a lot. And being kind of adventuristic, I guess my family thought, uh, I would try to act out what I saw in the movies, you know. But in terms of how I got from there to the South, uh, I was in love or infatuated with a girl named Nora and Nora worshiped trees. And uh, I had a friend, uh, 
who was kind of a nerd, his name was Danny Lopez, and Danny said to me, Nora loves me. And I said, no, Nora loves me. He said, well, let's call her, and we'll talk, and you listen, I listen. So we called, and uh, he had hooked up this thing of where I could listen to the conversation, and he could listen. Uh, and she kind of said the same thing to both of us. So I, uh, I had been playing football, but I, had to, I wasn't planning to go to college because I thought I was in love and I was going to get married. And I was working on the Bowery, walking up this, it was a mannequin factory. Seven flights every day walking up. And I actually had opened up a bank account. But uh, after the conversation with uh, Nora, I went to my father and I said I wanted to go to college. It was kind of a last minute thing, and I had missed some opportunities to go to either Syracuse or Michigan playing football. So the idea was that I would go south for a year and then see about coming back north to, to go to those schools. And I was a little bit excited about going south because of the civil rights action, what was going on. And uh, my mother at the time said, he, he can't go to Morehouse, he'll ruin our reputation, my family's reputation, because most of my uncles had gone there. So I ended up going to Morris College. My father knew some people there. So, uh, Jerry, the, Sorry um, I, th I think the story really begins to come alive uh, with your uh, activism and the campus activism at, okay. at Morris. Um, and your your uh, expressing tension to, um, to sort of test, uh, which is sort of an operative term, um, and I'll let okay. you explain that, but, but test in, in downtown Sumter okay. at um, uh, eating, eating establishments, uh, okay. for one thing. If you could um, talk, about, talk about the action there and your incarceration okay. there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, when I first got south, uh, well, the students at Morris College were, uh, most of them from Rock Hill, Friendship College, which was a two-year school. And Rock Hill became famous because the students there, uh, during, th these were the very beginnings of the sit-ins, what became known as the sit-ins. And in Rock Hill, they refused bail, as well as they refused to pay the fines. The history of uh, a lot of things that were happening in the south is people whether it was on buses or anything, they would pay the bail, and they wouldn't go back for the bail, so the money would just be lost. But what they did in Rock Hill at that time was they refused to pay bail or the fines. They were put on the chain gang, and then uh, the community was organized around the injustice of them being on the chain gang. And, uh, and these were students. These were students. And so most of those students, because it had been a two-year college, were now at Morris College. And uh, so they were organizing there. But when I first got there, they wouldn't let me take part in any of, the, any of the actions. I could work in the background or any direct voter registration things because I was from the North. And uh, they said that the, the people there would say it was just outsiders causing and stirring up trouble. Uh, eventually, we had a number of attempts to get into town to do sit-ins. And uh, the police always knew uh, we were coming, so they had police blocking the, the entrances to the stores and different things. So, but eventually what happened when I, they let me go, so a few of us were off campus overnight. Uh, the thought then was that either people that worked on the campus, that lived in the town, or some students uh, who lived in the town, 
uh, that would be how the police would always find out that we were planning a demonstration. So uh, there was four of us. We stayed overnight in town. Uh, in the morning, we had different, we, myself and a fellow named Popeye, who was the quarterback in the football team there, uh, we went to Crescent's. Uh, he went to the front door. The police were there, so they confronted him there. So I went in through the back door, and I ordered a soda. And uh, as I was there, I, uh, I looked to my left, and I saw the police. They had seen I was there, and they were coming in, so I jumped on the stool. And uh, the lady that was serving me, she was much older. Uh, I remember the wire rim glasses and the gray hair. I got gray hair now, too. But she, she was in shock. And I remember she just kept saying, you can't sit there, you can't sit there. And then I was surrounded, I was sitting on a stool, I had the soda, the police were around me. And it, was, it got very quiet, very tense, because they weren't doing anything. You know, the guy, one of the cops to my right had this flat, uh, bill, billy, no, blackjack, but it was flat. I remember he was kind of hitting his hand. But uh, it was tense because they weren't beating up, beating me up, and so, at one point, I asked the woman for my change, and one of the officers said to her, give him his change. She put the change in the counter. And then we were sitting there, talk about tense, man. It was intense because nothing was being said, and it was, it was just, you know, intense. And I mean, I wasn't trembling or shaking or anything, or, but it was just this dead spot. And what happened, I don't know how to explain it, it wasn't, it was maybe a thought and an action at the same time, but it wasn't like a voice say, oh, what you need to do is, you know. But I just reached up and took the top off the soda and that was it, they had me up in the air and they were marching me out. And uh, I, I had an experience then where I actually heard music and it was, the whole atmosphere in the place changed. And uh, it, I heard, uh, it was lift every voice and sing a song. Uh, and at the time, I used to have a, this tam that uh, later, I guess, the Black Panthers started wearing. But in those days, it was kind of like beatnik poetry gear, you know, which I put on. When we got to the, uh, which you couldn't do nowadays to reach in your pocket, I think about that, you know. But when we got to the police station, of course, the sheriff, uh, he, he said, yeah, you're a northerner, you're stirring up trouble. He said, I'm gonna see you in a coffin. So he, he threatened your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, prom he promised me a coffee. And uh, then uh, eventually Popeye and Herman, Herman Harris, who went on the rides later, they got arrested and they were in the cell with us. And uh, what happened, uh, do we have time for me to go on about this? Eventually, uh, the students, they would pretend, oh, during that period of time, uh, in Africa, the Mau Mau's had killed two nuns. And I, we could hear the policemen in the small cell talking about what had happened there, even though there was at the time, you know, they weren't uh, necessarily positive about Catholics or Jews or anything. But they said, well, we've got them talking about us in jail. And then there was like, what I heard was, I thought was a rally that was going on in town. And I figured it might have been like a Klan thing. And, uh, but, no so one came voices, and dragged us out. Yeah. Voices out, out in the streets. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And no one came and dragged us out. So what eventually happened, the students one day, a number of students stayed in town like we had done, 
and the students did this fake march to draw the police out. But what happened was the, uh, somehow they all got off campus, right? So it was singing in the streets, and this was singing in the streets for sure. It wasn't in my head, and uh, it was beautiful. But uh, the way it happened was uh, you hear uh, a call come in, and it says they had some students over at Lawson's drugstore, and, and uh, Mr. Lawson was one of those guys, kind of like Bo Connor. He was an axe handle swinging guy, you know. And uh, so the calls were coming in and uh, saying, like, we have a bunch at the bus station. What should we do? And Sheriff Parnell's there. Lock them up. We got a bunch at the library. Lock them up. Got some down at the Crescent. Lock them up. The niggers will never take Sumter. Lock them up. And so they had us all packed into this place. And eventually uh, they, had, they had no room, so they put us in the county jail. And that place rocked all night long. We had the, uh, the choir was in, the football team, basketball team. Uh, and I used to tease people, say, uh, Ms. Professor Hayes' chemistry students were even in, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but what happened, my father came down. At that point, I don't know, a lot of people don't know, uh, a lot of pastors, a lot of the clergy in general did not uh, support Dr. King in the movement. As a matter of fact, my father uh, didn't, you know, he, he really didn't. But what happened, he came south. Uh, my mother said, go get that boy out of jail. <laughs> so uh, his mind was changed. He said the spirit of the students had changed his mind. And I have a picture of, uh, of my father with Dr. King. Oh, let me give you this background. My mother uh, used to train uh, Reverend King Sr.'s choir in Atlanta. And uh, my father knew them because he had been vice president of the National Baptist Association. And he also taught uh, pastors on uh, church polity and things where he was helping them because pastors would end up having strokes or die and a family would be destitute. So he worked with helping that. Uh, he also had created, helped create coalitions in New York between uh, you know, Protestant Catholics, you know, and Jewish rabbis. Uh, he'd also made inroads with the American Baptists, uh, which was basically the white Baptists in the South, National Baptists and Black Baptists, where they had gotten together. So he had influence. And I had this great picture of them at Abyssinian uh, Baptist Church. He, Wyatt T. Walker, and all these different guys with uh, Dr. King when they decided they would support him. Anyways, he did. He came, he got us out of jail. Uh, got me out of jail. Uh, we had been refusing to uh, do the bail or to do uh, pay fines, but what they did in Sumter was they wouldn't take us to trial. Where in Rock Hill and different places, they took people to trial and then people would, you would end up on the, uh, the chain gang, which is what we hoped for, but they didn't. They wouldn't, they just kept delaying. So uh, what happened uh, moving on uh, we knew that the Freedom Rides were coming. And uh, so when I was home for Christmas vacation, we were at the dinner table, and I mentioned it to, to my family. And of course, my mother said, no way, you've done enough. You're not going, I ever talked to that boy, you know. And uh, they kind of basically got a commitment out of me that I would not go on the rides, that if I did anything, I would just be supportive. 
Uh, does that answer? I keep rolling. <laughs> so you, you, you promised your mom and dad that you would, would not, not yeah. get on the bus, which they, they sort of sniffed in you the spirit that you were likely to, to get on the bus, and they, they uh, yeah. drew a promise out of you that you, right, you that wouldn't, wouldn't ride. Go. Right. So then the buses came through yeah. Sumter. Yeah. You got me on this? Okay. It's out of consideration for them. <laughs> while, uh, while Jerry's uh, re recovering, um, um, you know, one thing to, to keep in mind, and I, I want to, this is particularly meaningful, I think, to those of you who have some years to your life, but maybe to the, to the young people that are here too. When Jerry did all this, he was 19 years old. And if, if you saw the documentary and you saw the, the, um, the depth of the evil, it, it just um, rocks me to, to think of, of going through something like that when I was 19 years old, which really for most of us is you're, you're still a child. So when you got on that bus, you were still a teenager. Yeah, you know, and I didn't start thinking of it that way until... Uh, you know, when they were doing the documentary, they kept bringing up uh, that I was one of the youngest. And, uh, well, I guess like most 19-year-olds, <laughs> I thought I was mature. <laughs> but, uh, And, and yeah. bulletproof, probably. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you know, that's the, that's the thing, I guess, uh, when we're young. And I, you know, I think that's what's being exploited, not to switch on this thing, but by groups like uh, ISIL or ISIS, whatever you want to call it, because kids don't, uh, you kind of see the romantic side of the things or the adventuristic side of it, uh, but not the true brutality, you know? Uh, I remember even as a teenager at one point, somebody hit a Quran and was reading about riding through, you know, and all this looked like glorious kind of thing with the Quran, it sounded great, but that's outside of the reality of taking life. And, so, Jerry, um, trying to s sort of play beat the clock here, um, just give us a sort of a brief setup on, on how you got on the bus, and, okay. then, and then take us to Birmingham. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, what they had done, the Freedom Rides, I guess, I'm taking it for granted, everybody knows that even though they, they said that they were the first Freedom Rides, they weren't. The, James Peck on the ride in 1947 had been involved in, in, in what was called the Ride for Reconciliation. And uh, that was because, that's where the law about uh, no segregation in terms of interstate travel had happened. A woman named Irene Morgan, who had, uh, had refused to give up her seat, and that led to a court case. What followed was another case by a guy named Bruce Boynton. So the law was passed that they couldn't segregate on seating on these vehicles, any vehicles doing uh, interstate travel. So the Bruce Boynton uh, Supreme Court, he had a case in his one, and that extended to restaurants, rest stops, that they couldn't be so, uh, they couldn't be segregated, and they had to serve everyone. So for the Freedom Rides, they mapped out their trip. We knew they were coming, uh, and it was to test the different facilities to see if they were abiding by the laws in different states. Um, so in different places that the riders would come, 
uh, churches, schools, different places, were set up to either house them overnight or to let them come speak. And they would come speak and sing, and maybe we'll do one or two of the songs that used to get sung at this time. Uh, okay, we're good. So uh, we in Sumter were waiting for them. Uh, and Rocky, they didn't run into trouble until they got, true trouble until they got in South Carolina where uh, they were attacked. Uh, a couple people were taken to jail, uh, but they weren't formally arrested and they were held. So when the other writers got, the idea was that if you got arrested, you did not do bail, you also stayed in jail where you were. So the other writers came to Sumter. A few of the writers weren't there because they'd been detained. Uh, and it wasn't clear as to where they were. Uh, while the buses, while they were there, and oh, here's something that uh, people don't get. These were not chartered buses. Uh, these were the actual regular Greyhound and trailways. I think because of the Butler movie and different movies, people get the impression at uh, core that they had chartered buses. These were just the regular buses. We rode with regular passengers. Uh, so, they got the Sumter. Uh, some of them were missing at first, which they caught up and came, but three of us from our group, student group, decided to go because it, it was clear that if enough of them got arrested, that was gonna be basically the end of the rides. So we joined them in Sumter. I, uh, <laughs> I, told, I, said, I told, actually told them, I said, uh, they, didn't want my name to be out there at all because uh, my parents basically were like sharecroppers and there might be repercussions <laughs> against them for me being on the rides. You just didn't want your parents to find out you were on the bus. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and, and you know, and it kind of everybody knew I was lying because, well, some of the people I knew anyways. Uh, so we joined, joined the rides and uh, a guy named Jimmy McDonald did the singing along the way whenever we'd go to places like the campuses or different churches, and they'd talk about the rides and why the rides. And uh, what was it thinking was important? Uh, so yeah, we left Sumter and went to different parts of Georgia. When we got to Atlanta, uh, that's where Uh, Dr. Keyes met us in Atlanta, and I pretty much kind of avoided him, like at the big table, I just sat way back, and he saw I, because I didn't want Pops and Mom to know. Uh, when we left from Atlanta, uh, the Greyhound left first. When we were waiting in the terminal, I rode on the second bus, which left an hour or so later, which was the Trailways bus. Uh, in the terminal, there were two guys sitting at the counter uh, with blue suits. I actually thought maybe they were FBI, you know. But when we got on the bus, uh, I sat behind the driver, and Charles Persons sat to behind, next to the front, front seat by the door, the entrance of the door. And these two guys got in, and they sat behind me, you know. Uh, so the buses took off. And uh, if time, I want to tell you this wonderful thing that God did for me in terms of Charles Person when we went on the Oprah Winfrey show for the 50, if we get there. Uh, so we took off, and on the way there, going toward Birmingham, 
there was a little stop in Cedar, Georgia, in uh, Cedar Town, Georgia, and there was just a little bus stop, and uh, you guys, the two guys behind me, they got off, they went into it, and at the time I smoked, and at the time I don't, I, you could smoke on buses, I guess, but I was out of matches, so I got off the bus and went to go buy a book of matches, not testing or anything, and as I approached, the guy grabbed the doors, and I was like, uh-oh, you know, what do I do now, you know? I'm out here in the middle, this guy's holding the doors, what am I supposed to do? But then uh, one of the guys that had been riding behind me that was already in there told the guy to let me in, so he let me in, I bought the matches, went and got back in the bus. Uh, and then this guy came out, and uh, he came uh, to the door of the bus, and he said, you niggas are gonna get it in Aniston. In, in Aniston? Yeah, that's what he told me. Or, or maybe he just said Alabama. What did he say, Birmingham? I don't know, but we were gonna get it, and I was sure he said, uh, I, was, I thought he said Aniston, but he must have said Birmingham, now I rethink it. But what happened was, as we were riding, the way it worked, blacks would ride in the front, in the middle, and the white riders uh, would ride maybe in the back, force people to mix. Uh, in case of someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, on the Freedom Rides, we were mixed groups, and it was mixed in terms of age and ethnicity. Uh, it took the rides. So the white riders would ride in the back, and the black would ride in the front and force this mix on the bus. So what happened after the guy came and said that, James Peck, who had been riding in the back, kind of exposed himself, because he came up front and he said to me, he whispered to me, he said, don't test at undesignated spots. And I swear, he told me something that happened to the other bus, you know? And uh, I tried to rethink it and rethink it. Uh, it was known, the FBI knew that something was gonna happen. They basically knew what was gonna go down, you know, which is interesting because an informer within, for the FBI was a guy who supplied uh, and was a big instigator for the actions against the riders. He also supplied the dynamite used to blow up the church in Birmingham, and the guns that were used to kill. And, and the, the other bus, uh, if, you've, if you've seen the documentary, mm -hmm. the other bus uh, that Jerry's alluding to, uh, oh, yeah. uh, was the bus in Aniston that was uh, firebombed with people on it and, uh, uh, and the passengers, the, 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 the core people, the Freedom Riders, uh, beaten very, very badly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was, that was the other bus. There were two buses. Yeah, and... yeah they had said uh, they were going to save us, the Klan. It was two things. They had started a new organization, which I haven't seen much. I remember reading an article that said that the Klan was too moderate. And, uh, but they had said they were going to put the fear of the Klan into the nation. And uh, so our bus was being saved for Birmingham, where Bull Connor had said that he was going to give the Klan uh, 15 minutes with us and then anything was left, he would arrest. When we got to Aniston, uh, you know, there was a whole crowd there to meet us and the people were jeering and screaming. And uh, to make a long story as short as I can, uh, so the bus driver eventually uh, got on the bus and the police had surrounded it. And I remember outside the window where I was, there was a, uh, I guess one of the policemen, he had this Winchester 73 and a German Shepherd dog. And uh, 
But the bus driver got on. There had been these guys all along the way who would get on, and they kind of were dressed alike, you know, the like white T-shirts, the sleeves rolled up, the cigarette pack in the sleeve. And uh, it was kind of like a movie, you know, because now the bus driver comes on, he says, I know the niggers got a right to ride what they want, but I ain't going to burn for no niggers. And he gets off the bus, so now these guys, like in the movies, old westerns, they're standing up, get in the back, we ain't going to burn for no niggers, get in the back, you know, and they're coming up front, taking over the bus. And uh, there was always something that was almost a little comical that would happen in those situations. And uh, as they were coming up, this guy with a blue suit, straw hat, he had a flower lapel, I keep trying to remember what it was, a white or red rose. But anyways, he jumps on the bus and he says like he's FBI and more or less something like, be cool, and then he splits, you know? And, uh, and then they started beating on us. And I remember that uh, I saw Peck, uh, he came forward and he was saying, what's going on? And this guy, used the two chairs to elevate himself and kick uh, James in the chest, knocked him down. And then they earnestly start to, because they had started on uh, Charles first, beating him up, and then they came to me. And uh, I remember getting thrown on, at a trial that happened later. I said I got dumped on uh, Dr. Bergman's back, but they misquoted it and said I had jumped on his back, which at first I thought was on purpose, but I realized that during the training for nonviolence, if someone was being beaten or something, you were supposed to put yourself in harm's way. So I think that maybe she thought that's what happened. Anyways, uh, I got thrown on top of him. I was being kicked in the back of the head and the back. And I actually, something I only recently began to uh, share with people was, because I don't want to distract from the rides, but uh, I had, I guess, what they call out-of-body experience, or I had a great hallucination. <laughs> um, it was almost like I was at the top of the bus and I could see everything going on. I could see myself being beaten and everything. So later, then they put us in the seats and they were taking us to Birmingham. And I had a jet magazine and I had been writing. We had been arguing about who was going to get the test in Mississippi, you know. And, uh, but I had been writing about freedom and... Uh, American democracy, and we were writing for freedom, we were willing to die for freedom. And uh, one of the guys was mainly two guys up front, this one guy with a pistol and his belt, and this other guy, he picks up the stuff I was writing and he's reading it. So you were writing on the magazine? Uh, no, I actually had no paper, I was oh. writing paper, I had like a little notebook. And uh, so he hands it to the guy with the gun and points me out. So I was sure we were gonna pull over and that was the end of me. But they saved us for Birmingham. So when we got to Birmingham, oh, here, another thing was all along, they were screaming and yelling about pinkos and troublemakers coming from the north and commies uh, stirring up trouble. That was the general thing that was always said. And uh, we got to Birmingham and it started again. And you could see these guys, which you found out later, running into the uh, bus terminal and uh, you can see they had pipes and things. And uh, we found out later from the news that these are the same guys that had been in Anniston, but the whole thing of coming to Birmingham for staging the next thing. So as we're getting off the bus, Charles Persons and James Peck, they were to test. We, we had designated bus stops that uh, you, you and a partner would test at 
the counter at that place. You were going and test. There would be one of the people in the group would be an observer to see what would happen. Uh, Peck in person, uh, Birmingham was their test spot. And uh, James Peck said that he looked at Charles, because Charles is a black student out of Atlanta, and said he was worried and concerned. And uh, he said, person said, let's go. And so, as, yeah. as, you were, as you were pulling into the, to, to the bus station, I think mm -hmm. I recall you saying that you could see um, lots, of act, lots of activity in the street and in the bus terminal itself, people running and uh, people at the windows uh, oh, yeah. well, cheering. That, and, no, that part, that was an answer. Oh, that was an I wanted to skip ahead because yeah. of the time, because yeah. I got to get us to New Orleans and out of there, you know? So uh, the... Uh, yeah, so we could see the guys running, but you know, most of lead pipes and stuff. Uh, so Peck and Person went in, and this, the down to the terminal kind of was on a slant. And uh, so they were get, being beaten down inside. And, uh, and at one point, Herman and I, well, there was one man, he came running out, they almost ripped all his clothes off, he had this gigantic gash he was bleeding from. And I believe he was a passenger, he'd been waiting for his wife who was on the bus. And uh, so Herman and I at one point started down, and it, they'd set up, it was almost like a gauntlet, you know, and there was this guy, and I guess he had his eye on me, <laughs> he had this pipe, and uh, what happened, there was a flash of light, and uh, I, always, I always thought that it had been a flashball because the accounts say that uh, these guys had turned on the reporters, the one was a photographer, plus they beat up some guy, a uh, radio announcer, newscaster in a car. So, but when we were at Oprah, and Ray Arsenal, who wrote this great book about the Freedom Rides, uh, I mentioned that light to him, and he more or less had, uh, he's kind of like poo-pooed it, you know. And, uh, but when we were in, and I gotta share this, uh, for the Oprah Winfrey show, uh, we were in a hotel in the morning. Uh, they gave us breakfast. And then I went to the bathroom. I came out of the bathroom. Everybody was gone, right? And uh, so one of the uh, directors saw me and said, what are you doing here? Because we have a checklist, so you shouldn't be here. But she drove me to the studio. But the security was such that my group had gone in, so I, she couldn't get me in. She had to take me around to the guests, the visitors. Uh, and she argued with them, so they finally let me in. Uh, point being, what happened was uh, when it was time to let us in, my group, which was sitting, would have been, was seated right in front of the stage. Uh, that was all filled. There was one chair left, and that was right up behind where, where uh, what's it, Oprah sat. But the thing about it, uh, if you ever see that Oprah show again, there's a guy with an orange shirt. My cousin had told me to wear it matches her dress, and that's me right behind her. But here was the beautiful thing about that, that, I don't know, I'd call it the providence of God. That one chair was next to Charles Person. And I hadn't seen him since the rise. When Cousin Anderson, I sat behind the driver and he sat across so it was great to see him. But here was another thing that was great about it. I hadn't really been in touch with a lot of the people. Uh, we talked about that moment.
and he mentioned, it's not that heavy, I don't know what that most, but he mentioned the light. He said, <clears throat> they were being beaten, and he said there was this flash of light, I didn't move my head. There was a flash of light, and uh, after the light flashed, he said everything went still. He said, and then all of a sudden everything exploded. You heard the sirens and everything. And where I was walking, it was the same experience. I saw this flash of light, and it was like a pause, and then everything exploded. And these guys are running everywhere. Uh, I guess. Yeah, thanks. Because the police were coming. I felt like I had a bit on there. Uh, so it was great to get a chance to talk to him about that because uh, in thinking about it, it was like, okay, well, you were down there at that end of the, this like almost tunnel, you know, the runway. And I was up outside on the outside and said, what was this light that we saw? You know, and there, different writers have all these different stories of different things that happened. Uh, what happened after that, we were, uh, you heard the sirens. Uh, Herman and I got a ride from a woman. We were like, we're standing there and it's pretty much now, everything's pretty much cleared out. And like, what should we do? He said, well, we were supposed to be at Fred Shuttleworth's church. Uh, and uh, so we decided to try and get there and we decided to try and hitch. And this woman picked us up and said she never picks up hitchhikers and uh, took us to the church. And it was a fantastic rally there where they greeted us. Uh, James Peck, of course, was in the hospital. He ended up with 50 plus stitches on his head and everything. Uh, I was telling Dave last night, I tried to remember the songs at the rally. I don't really remember the songs sung that night, but it was very high spirited, you know. Uh, when we, the next thing that happened, uh, a lot of people, Oh, previous to this, James Farmer, who was the head of Corps, his father had died, so he wasn't with us on this part of the ride. James Peck, being the experienced rider that he had been involved in uh, the earlier rides in the 40s, he basically had taken over. But he took the worst beating uh, because they felt that the white riders in general were traitors, so quite often they were the main target. They would brutalize more. Uh, so next, we were trying to continue the ride because we were supposed to go to Montgomery. And it was to be a rally with Dr. King and his church and, and, and in support of what they were doing there. Uh, but the bus drivers refused to take us. Uh, I like on, on the uh, DVD, uh, one of the guys says, don't start something if you ain't gonna finish it, which I think he sounds totally cool, but the reality was the drivers wouldn't take us. And we were sitting in the uh, station and uh, the crowd was gathering, you know, some of these same people. And uh, eventually they decided, well, then uh, Corps said they couldn't get us out of there, so they were gonna fly us to New Orleans. So we went then to the airport. And while we were at the airport, there were bomb threats. So a couple flights were canceled. And some of us, the younger guys, while we were there, said, well, you know, what are we gonna do? We're sitting here. So we 
desegregated the uh, lunch counter in the airport, which some of the older riders at that point were saying, okay, come on now, it's a little much. You know, but the people were gathering there and we got flown out and into Louisiana and the neo-Nazi party was waiting for us there. And we got off the planes and uh, uh, some interesting things happened there. I was staying at this house with uh, Charles Persons and it turns out Hank, but Charles and I were in the same room and I'd been sleeping and I woke up and I saw this white guy and I was like, uh-oh, they got us, you know, this is it. And it was very much the atmosphere because of the weather kind of reminded me of what I had in my mind uh, about Emmett Till, what that the weather was like, what that being out in the country was like. So this was very much that kind of bayou, Mississippi River thing. So that's the kind of thing I thought it was. But what happened, it turned out he was with SNCC and he generally would, because uh, he would be in the community, he would know what people were planning to do on the other side. And uh, so he was filling them in on what was happening in town. SNCC being Student Nonviolent non Coordinating right. Committee. Right, right, sorry, okay, yeah. So, and he was a part of that and uh, filling them in. The next, uh, in terms of my personal trip, what happened the next day, we were at, uh, I believe it was a YMCA, uh, get a phone call. And the pay phone was right near the door and I went to the phone call and it was my mother. Uh, they knew where I was now and uh, she was saying what had happened, my grandfather had died and she was very upset at me and she actually, something that I was confused about for years was she said it was my fault, it was my fault. And uh, for years I didn't know if this, it was, she mean that it's my fault, my grandfather died because I was on the ride, uh, the, the, he died instead of me dying on that bus or, you know what I mean? That kind of thing for years and years it bugged me but I finally did this, <laughs> sensible thing, you know, 30 years later <laughs> and asked her, but she said no, it was that because of what I had done, uh, the funeral arrangements were having to be changed and people didn't know where I was and all this, these different conflicts had happened. So what happened was I hung up from that call with my mother and almost before I turned around, these guys came in, it was the FBI, they took me out, they had me in the car right in front of the center. And they were talking to me and they were telling me how I was a good guy. You know, it's the usual thing. You're a good guy and all these other people, the troublemakers, a bunch of commies and pinkos and that stuff. And I don't think they really realized what they were saying to me because, uh, you know, number one, they were the FBI. You know, this whole thing with the Freedom Rides was about American democracy. The whole struggle was about freedom and, and the racism and segregation was opposing freedom, it was opposing democracy. And uh, the FBI represented for me as a young guy, you know, the stand up for freedom. So now here these guys hand me the same story that I got from the racists, from the same guys, told me he's gonna put me in a coffin, you know. So anyways, I was sitting there and I was crying. This was, I think it was true cry. <laughs> and uh, not weeping, but you know, tears. 
And uh, some of the uh, more experienced guys came out. I think it was Perkins. And it wasn't Peck, so I'm not sure which one of the other riders. Uh, they came and rescued me out of the car. So the next thing that happened for me on my trip was I had to return to Sumter to get my things to go for the funeral. And so here I am um, in an airport, and uh, you know, I'm wondering what's going to happen. You know, I got the same clothes on, people seen us on the news and stuff. But I got to Columbia, and uh, then I needed to get a cab uh, from Columbia to Sumter. And it took a little time. And years, just a few years ago, I just rethought that whole situation. The thing that stuck out to me was that uh, on the ride there, the guy was driving through the backwoods, and there was a car following us. So as far as I knew, it was going to be... Uh, just the, you know, the clan, and I was going to disappear in the backwoods. But years later, I thought maybe it was the feds. And I realized that the driver had been white. And in those days, you used a black cab if you were black, not white. But this, so that might have been the whole fed thing. So, Jerry, I think I see we're that we have time, just yeah. two, or three, two or three minutes left, and I want to get one more song. Oh, yeah, if, oh, okay. If, if we could. But just, um, just to, to sort of Go, go a bit into the future. Um, I know that when, when we met in, in Woodstock, mm -hmm. um, you know, a decade more, more than a decade later, you were uh, very passionate. Uh, you were still, uh, had an activist's heart. Oh, and um, uh, you had sort of grown to, to include other um, causes that you were passionate about, and I think the, the anti-war movement was was yeah. one of those. Yeah. And so, I um, my question is is just a, a very simple one, which is that um, your experience as a as a freedom rider um, sort of set you on a on a course of of uh, higher consciousness and. Um, concern for the state of, of humankind and it sort of fell into, into a number of other different um, emphases for you which was when, when we met you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the war movement and then I believe you were uh, involved with the anti-nuclear power yeah. movement and then um, in LA you were involved with a ministry uh, a street ministry in and oh, yeah. just, just say uh, like a minute or two ab about that, and okay. I think we'll be ready to sing. Yeah, okay, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, after that, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to go back south for the second phase. Two things happened. One was that Herman Harris, who had been on the rides, he was, stayed on campus the summer to work, and he'd been kidnapped off campus, got K's cutting him and stuff. And uh, Parnell, Sheriff Parnell had said that he, uh, he, he believed Herman did it to himself and stuff. But anyways, we, we began to move in different directions off the campus, and uh, a lot of it had to do with self, you know, pulling up self. And I went, when I went back north, I thought I was gonna play some music and raise money to take back. And I got involved in the uh, anti-war movement, the anti-nuke. Uh, and uh, I don't know, when I, came, when I went to LA, uh, it was a number of things I ended up in the street ministry, and basically it was, it was out of a place called the Bombco Motel. 
and the, the address is painted in big letters on the, the motel rooftops for the police because uh, LAPD said it was the worst spot in the worst neighborhood in LA County. And this couple uh, had started this ministry there. And uh, so we would have services there on Sunday, feed people, and we started tutoring the kids. Uh, we got help from a lot of different churches, different denominations, you know. Uh, Beller Presbyterian uh, used to give us a lot of money to help uh, with the feeding, with the rooms. Uh, uh, St. Monica's Catholic Church actually gave us our first tables and chairs. And I had, the first time we fed people was totally cool. I had made this brown rice and I mixed it with the white rice because I said, I'm going to get some health food into these people, man. And uh, at the end, the thing that was left, uh, all the food was gone, was my brown rice. And a uh, few people were still coming in. And this lady drove up and she said, God had told her to make gumbo. You know, and that was great. So, uh, so you mixed it with your rice and, yeah. and fed the rest of <laughs> the, the uh, 5,000. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so, yeah, now I'm active with a, it's a ministry called Embajada de Dios, which is Hispanic uh, ministry, and we've been feeding people on, th mainly focusing on Thanksgiving, and it's been expanding. Uh, so, and some wonderful things happen, man. I've had uh, times we'd be feeding people, and somebody next to me would say, hey, this one guy one time, first time, said, you don't recognize me, do you? You know? I said, no, and he said, I used to be over here during this whole crack thing, you know? And uh, we'd helped him get home, and uh, so he had a job, and he was doing stuff. Uh, yeah, lots of stories. I, uh, I'm going to be putting more of them up on this website that I did, uh, jerrymoremusic.com. Uh, I'm afraid a lot of the music on it is secular music I did before. Uh, I'm hoping to get some more, you know, praise, some of my praise and worship tunes recorded better. But my brother's in ministry now, and so some of his books and the music he's doing is on there. Right. And some of the story of what, what I've experienced. Would you all say thank you to, to Jerry? Okay. Melissa, can we have time for one, one song? And uh, I think Jerry wants to invite anybody from the worship band who wants to come up and, and jam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anybody else? Percussionist? I see some percussion instruments up here. Ron, do you have your hand up? <laughs> um, is our guitarist, our guitarist gone? Okay. Okay. Yeah, thank you all for patience there. We got a man. Yeah, the song's called I Won't Turn Back. What key are we at, A D minor, I think. Is this D? D minor? It's a struggle for survival And we daily meet the foe out here on life's battlefields, sometimes I feel alone. That's when I reach for my holy armor, I take up my shield. 
faith I march out on life's battlefields take up my sword I say the mountain's high but it ain't too steep the battle is rough I'm gonna aim to and I won't turn back Lord, I won't turn back The road is hot But it ain't too long The enemy's near But he ain't very strong And I won't turn back By the grace of my God I won't turn back I said I won't, I won't
your struggles in life. And sometimes you just have to make a declaration that you won't turn back. You know, God has delivered us from these things and we got to keep moving forward, right? So just make that declaration in your heart that you won't turn back. Tell hate, I said hate, I won't, I won't turn back. Anger, I won't, I won't turn back. Oh, spirit of lust, I'm never turning back. Well, there we are. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for today. Thank you for today, Dave. Thank you more importantly for your life. Your life speaks loudly of love, and it has been a good challenge for us today. So as I'm reminded by looking at your life and us hearing just a glimpse into it, I think you truly understand and have understood what it means to take up your cross and follow after Christ. And I think that needs to be our challenge as we move forward in this Lenten season that we could be reminded today and challenged, what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us as individuals to take up our cross and to follow Christ? And to understand in the midst of that, when we take a stand, that we will face opposition, that there will be naysayers, that there will be people that complain against us, but it's not only an important thing that we take a stance, it's also important how we respond to those people. So that's my challenge to you as we end this service, to be reminded, what does it look like for you to take up your cross and follow Christ as we move forward in this Lenten journey? Again, thank you so much for today. Thank you to all the amazing volunteers that made today happen. Thank you for joining us online.